Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. I don't know if you've noticed, but this world is not the way that it was supposed to be. Something is not right in the world. And I'm talking right now just about nature, just creation. Don't even think about people and sin and war and all that stuff that people perpetrate against one another. Just talking about the world and the way things work. There is evidence all around us that something has gone wrong. If you just think about the example of animals and wildlife, the, the examples of violence and destruction in wildlife itself is enough to give you pause. I don't know if you've ever like watched videos, you know, the kind of National Geographic type videos of lions attacking gazelles and chasing down zebras and all this kind of stuff. It's really amazing at one level. You just go, wow, the like power and speed and like surprise that these lions, you know, uh, inflict upon their victims is, is impressive to behold. But then at the deeper level, if you just sit with it for a minute, you go, this doesn't feel right. Like that nature is at war with itself, right? Animals attacking animals. Some animals have been known to eat their own children. Like that's messed up. Something is not right. And if you look beyond the animal kingdom and the violence and things that you see in wildlife and think about what we call natural disasters, things like hurricanes and flooding and tornadoes and earthquakes, things that have no human beginning to them, no person decides to shift the earth underneath everybody's feet. That's something that the world just does, right? There's destruction and turmoil and pain that come through the creation just not working right. It's like the world is at war with itself. That's what it feels like sometimes. The brokenness of the world extends to, if you just think about the, the nature of our work. We're in the world, we're supposed to work in the world, we've got jobs to do, but work is messed up. Work is hard. Work is frustrating. Even just to tie it very closely to the earth, think about the farmer. The farmer depends entirely upon the world cooperating the earth working with him, right? But there's examples all over the place of that just not happening, of the earth being stubborn, being hardened, not providing the rain that's needed or the sunlight that's needed, and famine and drought happen. It's like the earth fought the farmer and the earth won. Why is the world this way? The world is broken. It's out of sync. It's like the birds sing in a minor key. It's something is wrong, which points to this question, why? Why is the world this way? Will it always be like this? Is this just our lot in life and this is the way the world will always be? What can be done about it? Is there something that can be done to fix it? 
That series of questions leads us to this series of messages, this Advent series that we're calling Far As the Curse is Found. We just sang that line in the Isaac Watts hymn, Joy to the World. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And so we're looking to the coming of Jesus into the world to answer the deepest and biggest questions and problems that we face. And indeed, not only in our own lives, but globally, all around us, the world is broken, people are broken, relationships are broken, it is a mess. Jesus came to bring his blessings as far as the curse is found. And so we've been looking at the curse that God placed upon humanity and the world because of sin. That takes us to Genesis chapter 3. God made a good world. He made innocent people. They were in perfect relationship with him. They were in perfect relationship with each other. They had a harmonious relationship with the earth. God put them there to cultivate it and take care of it, and everything was like it was supposed to be until Genesis chapter 3, when Satan, in the form of a serpent, comes to the woman And he begins to question God's character and question what God really said to them. Maybe he's holding out on you. He said, you can't eat anything in the garden? Well, well, we can eat stuff. We just can't eat that one fruit. What's going to happen if you eat the fruit? We're going to die. No, you're not really going to die. God knows that if you eat that fruit, you're actually going to be wiser. You're going to have special insight into the way of the world and the way of life and knowing good and evil. And so Satan tempts, distorts, deceives, and Eve rebels. She decides she doesn't trust God, and she chooses to eat the fruit. And her husband, who was with her, and therefore failing in his own uh, uh, responsibility, also takes the fruit and eats. So Bad things happen immediately. They immediately become aware that they're naked. They go hiding from God. They sew leaves together to make underwear for themselves. And God comes to them and he says, what have you done? And when he discovers, he does his little investigation and finds out. Of course, he knows what's happened. He's just kind of giving them an opportunity to fess up. And they blame shift. Well, the serpent was the serpent's fault. No, it was the woman's fault. You know, you gave her to me. It's kind of your fault, right? So that, that all happens. And so God begins in verse 14 of Genesis 3 to pronounce curses upon the people and the world because of sin in judgment of their rebellion against him. And this curse, the series of curses, is not just to affect Adam and Eve, but it is global. It is universal and it is timeless. It affects all human beings and all of creation down through the ages into our very own day. So he spoke first to the serpent and then he spoke to the woman and we've looked at those already in the past couple of weeks. And today he turns his attention to Adam, to the man. Read with me, follow with me uh, in verse 17. And to Adam... He said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now we will save the part about dust, from dust to dust, until next week. Today we're looking specifically at verse 17 and kind of the first, uh, or 17, 18 and the first half of verse 19. God's curse upon the ground, his curse upon the earth, and the effect that that has upon man's work. So there's kind of two aspects to the, to the curse that God places here. There, there's the curse that affects the earth itself, the creation itself. And then there's the effect that that curse has upon man and his work, all right? So we'll take each of those aspects in turn. So the first aspect of the curse here is essentially that the earth is now barren and destined for destruction. The earth is barren and destined for destruction. Look there again in verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. What does that mean? Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. This is what was in Isaac Watts' mind when he wrote Joy to the World. No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. What thorns is he talking about? He's talking about this curse that God placed upon the world in judgment of human sin. Thorns and thistles now grow up. Instead of uh, the, the earth producing fruit and crop and working harmoniously with people, now it's going to produce thorns and thistles and weeds and things that you don't really want in your garden. Think about this. There were probably no weeds in the Garden of Eden, right? It was, it was perfect. The earth worked perfectly. The ground yielded fruitful crop. Human beings were in harmonious relationship with the earth as its stewards. Everything worked right. Work was not hard. Adam tended the garden and it produced. It did what it was supposed to do. But now the ground is going to produce thorns and thistles. The first time I heard about thistles was in Winnie the Pooh because that's what Eeyore used to eat. Remember that? He's this sad, gloomy donkey and he eats thistles, which are sharp and prickly. It's a really weird thing to eat. I wonder if that had something to do with why he was sad all the time. He was eating thistles. But that's what the ground begins to produce now. The plants that you have have the, the, the potential for harm instead of just benefit, instead of just sustenance. In response to Adam's rebellion against God, God places this judgment upon the creation itself. This is kind of interesting. He doesn't say, Adam, you are cursed. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. And that's going to have a direct and immediate impact upon Adam and upon all of his posterity, but he curses the ground. It's broken. It doesn't work right anymore. Instead of grass and flower and herbs, it will bring forth thistles and thorns and weeds. And the cursed ground has a much broader application than just farming. That's where it begins. That's the first fruit of what, where Adam sees this. But it, but it expands and I believe includes natural disasters like hurricane, that, hurricanes and things that wreak havoc upon the creation. And eventually, the whole world will be 
destroyed. Second Peter tells us, or Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, verses 7 and 10, he says, By the word of God, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But the day of the Lord, that is his return, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies, like planets and stars, will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's where the earth is heading. It is going to end at some point in God's way and God's time because of his curse upon the world in response to sin. The earth is barren and it's destined for destruction. And again, the examples of the world not working right are all around us. And sometimes we don't think about them or we dismiss them. Um, Insurance, you you probably have like an insurance policy that covers acts of God, right? Right? This is, a, this is the world at war with itself. This is the creation out of shape. So that's the first aspect of this curse in Genesis 3. The earth is barren and it's destined for destruction. The second aspect of it is how that affects human beings. Man's work has now become painful toil. Adam worked before the fall. Right? In Genesis 2.15, God put Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it, right? to cultivate the garden and to take care of it. He cultivated the earth, and it cooperated with him. It worked with him. It yielded its fruit. It provided its crop. What happens now is not that work is invented. What happens now is that work is frustrating. What happens now is that work doesn't always produce the desired outcome. What happens now is the world starts fighting back, all right? It's counterproductive. Look at that in verse 17. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. It will be painful to bring food forth. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth. You shall eat the plants of the field. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. It won't be so easy. It won't always be readily available. There will be struggle and strife and turmoil and battling and frustration and exhaustion just to get food. Even the most basic aspects of living in the world will be met with hardship and frustration. While the earth used to cooperate and yield its fruit and crop, now it's like the earth fights back against the farmer, right? The earth has stopped cooperating. It withholds its crop. It conceals its fruit. Instead, in fact, in fact, instead of fruit, it yields thorns and thistles. This is the world that we inhabit. This is the earth. This is the creation that we have. It's a misshapen, embattled earth. Things don't work right. It fights back against us. And it's destined for destruction. Now, lest you wonder if perhaps God overreacted to Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. Really? This much hardship 
and struggle and the whole world being broken and eventually being destroyed? Is this really not just a little bit too severe of a response on the part of God? We should remember that Adam and Eve were formed from dust. Adam was formed from dust. Eve was actually formed from part of Adam's body. And God is infinitely holy, righteous, pure, perfect. And rebellion against this God, even one seemingly small act of rebellion, is an infinite offense against a God like this, against a God this high and holy and righteous. What we think of as no big deal is an offense, an insult in the face of God. John Piper says, God put the natural world under a curse so that the physical horrors of that curse would become a vivid picture, a parable of the horrors of moral evil. That is sin. Moral evil is the rebellion against God and our, our desires which are twisted and forbidden and our words that are sharp and cutting and hurtful and our actions that don't love and respect and bless others and don't take God into account and, uh, and are offense against him. Our sin is such a big deal that it took God plunging all of creation into a state of brokenness and futility. We'll get to that passage in a minute. Paul uses that word in Romans 8. Into a state of frustration and embattlement to remind us of the holiness of God, of the seriousness of sin, and of the vastness of God's mercy. Let's get to the mercy part. The good news of Christmas is that Jesus comes into our broken world to make his blessings flow, right? As far as the curse is found. So how does Jesus undo the curse of a broken world and the curse of painful toil? Looking at both aspects of this, the earth itself, the creation itself being broken and the, the work of human beings being hard and, uh, and, and, and painful and exhausting. I see at least three ways that Jesus in his incarnation, that is when he came into the world as God and man and his life and death and resurrection, that he undoes this curse. First of all, Jesus Christ demonstrated his perfect dominion over the earth. Because remember, that's the situation that God put Adam and Eve in the garden to begin with. Exercise dominion, right? Let, um, let us make man in our image. Let him have dominion over the earth and the birds of the sea and all that stuff. Birds don't live in the sea. I always do that. I keep switching that up. Birds of the air, fish of the sea. All right. Just making sure you're awake. All right. So he puts him in the garden and he says, have dominion over the world. So what's happened in the fall? It's gone the other way around, right? The creature now leads the woman who then leads the man into sin. And together they plunge creation into ruin. The whole created order is upside down. But Jesus demonstrates perfect dominion over the earth. Where man had failed, Jesus exercises it 
perfectly. I'm going to show you two examples. There are way more. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus actually physically stops a storm with words. You might remember the story. Mark 4, beginning verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Like, this is a big enough storm that waves are crashing against the boat, and the boat is beginning to sink because it's filling up with water. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus has complete dominion over the earth. He speaks to wind and it stops blowing. He speaks to waves and they stop crashing. He rebukes the wind. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Jesus is able to stop a storm, that natural disaster that we're talking about. All he's got to do is go, enough, and it stops. Jesus has perfect dominion over the earth. In John chapter 6, he walks on water. Not like really shallow water or like, you know, in the, right by the shore, so it just looks like he's walking on water. He is in the middle of a sea, of a lake, and he's walking on top of the water. In John 6, beginning verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of a strong wind. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea coming near the boat, and they were frightened. I might be a little frightened too to find a man walking upon this stormy sea out to my boat. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Jesus is able to walk upon water, like the laws that govern everybody else, gravity and the density of mass and, and whatnot, doesn't apply. He just, he has perfect dominion over that. So he stops the storm, he walks on the water, he does all manner of other things that you could see throughout the Gospels. He demonstrates perfect dominion over the earth. Where man failed, Jesus succeeds. And beyond succeeds and shows that he is, in fact, not any ordinary guy. He is God in the flesh. The second way that Jesus undoes the curse is by going into the earth in death. In other words, he's buried. Jesus went to the cross to bear our sins and after he died, he was placed into the earth. Just a few chapters later, in John 9, chapter 19, we read these words. 
After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. It's as though the earth has swallowed its maker. Consider the Lord Jesus being placed inside a tomb. And a large stone we know is rolled in front of it because that stone is going to be removed in just a moment. Creation has dominion over man, even over God, as Jesus lies in the earth in death. But of course, you know the end of the story, right? As the song says, no grave could ever restrain him. And so on the third day, he emerges, the victor over sin and death, the victor over the curse. So the earth, in this ultimate reversal of God's created order, the earth swallows its maker, and then Jesus bursts forth in life and subjects the creation once again to his lordship. So Jesus goes into the earth in death and then emerges again in victorious life. So we see Jesus' relationship to the earth is different. It's better. It's the way that things were supposed to be for Adam and Eve. But they failed. And we have failed. Jesus sets it right again. Jesus places the earth under his own dominion and his own power. And he redeems our labor. He redeems the, the, the fallen, painful toil that human beings will have to endure because of the curse in at least three ways. Number one... He works an ordinary human trade. All the way up until his public ministry begins, when he's like about 30 or so years old, he's a carpenter. Mark chapter 6, verse 3, identifies him as that. His neighbors go, wait, isn't this the carpenter? And then others in Matthew 13 identify him as the son of Joseph the carpenter. So he's identified both as carpenter and son of a carpenter. So for the first 30 years of his life, he's grown up under his father's tutelage and learning his trade. Working with wood and, uh, and, and building things. Maybe he's like the local handyman, right? When something in your house breaks, he's the one who comes to, to fix it. He knew a hard day's work. He knew firsthand the frustration of things not going according to plan. He was a carpenter, so he probably had a table or a chair that came out a little crooked or a little unstable, right? Lucky for him, he didn't live in the time of Ikea assembly instructions because that's more frustration than anybody deserves. Uh, But Jesus knew the hardship of work. Jesus himself experienced the fallenness, the brokenness of human toil and labor in his own earthly work as a carpenter. And so 
Again, as Jesus takes our place, as Jesus is our stand-in, our substitute, he also works for us and experiences ordinary human work. He also does the work of his Father. This is a bit more significant, more important even than his ordinary human trade. He does the work of his Father. In John 5, 17, he says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. He just healed a guy on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees got all bent out of shape. You're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, listen, I'm going to be doing what my father is doing. My father's working. I'm working. So this work is deeper and more important and more lasting than just building a table. This is redeeming work. This is life-changing work. And he said to his disciples in John 9, uh, verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Jesus is all about, during his earthly ministry, carrying out the work of his father, carrying out his works. And so he redeems our work, in a sense, by infusing it with an even deeper significance, by doing the work of God in the midst of his own life. And then, get this, he sets us about carrying on his work. That's what Christians are supposed to be doing, the work of God, the work of Jesus. In John 14, 12, he says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. I don't think he's talking about the miracles. I think he's talking about the the life-giving, loving, truth-speaking ministry of leading others to Christ, about speaking truth and life into them. Those who believe in me will do the same works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father and sending the Holy Spirit. And so he commissions his disciples, go and do the same. Just as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. That's how he says it in John chapter 20. So he sets us about carrying on his work. And because of this, because Jesus himself takes up our work, both experiencing the frustration and the pain and the hardship of the, of, of, of the practical work that he does, and by doing the work of the Father in redeeming humanity and by imparting to us the same mission to go now and carry on my work, he lifts us out of our state of brokenness and disrepair and he sets us about something bigger and deeper and more lasting listen because jesus has redeemed our work we are still called to diligent labor so gospel isn't stop working right you go god created adam to work and then the world fell because of sin and so now god says the earth is cursed and work is going to be hard so if you envision a salvation that means no more working that's not really the point that's not the salvation that god has uh, has provided in fact he puts us to work and he still calls us to work but even though we're still affected by the curse We still have the frustration. We still have the pain. We still have the jobs that don't go the way that we want them to or the bosses that are difficult to abide or uh, the projects that kind of fall apart or whatever. We can work and toil knowing that our work is not in vain. That's maybe the best news for our work in this comes at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord. That doesn't sound like laziness. That sounds like hard work. Abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your work, if it is infused with the divine purpose of God, if your work vocationally and throughout your life is tied to the redeeming purposes of God, it will not be in vain. It has deep significance, and there are incredible opportunities to love and bless and to extend the blessing of Jesus into the brokenness of your neighbors. So we know that our work is not in vain. So the curse is that the earth is broken and barren and destined for destruction. And the result of that is that man's work has become painful toil and frustrating. And we see that Jesus comes into the midst of that and he, and he undoes that. He reverses the effects of that curse by demonstrating perfect dominion over the creation by going into the earth in death and then emerging in victorious life and then by redeeming our labor both by experiencing its brokenness and frustration and by giving us his work carrying on the work of God the Father so now there's yet a future date we don't know the date but there is a day coming when the kingdom of God in its fullness is realized, when God will establish his kingdom forever. I'd like you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. What we're doing in, in these messages essentially is kind of three touch points for each of these aspects of the curse. We, we want to get an idea of what's going on in the curse. What does the curse mean? How does the curse affect Adam and Eve? How does the curse affect all of humanity and all of creation? So we spend a little bit of time there. Then we want to go fast forward to the time that Jesus came into the world and uh, the, the time where his apostles are teaching Christians about how to live in this present time and how Jesus changed and affected the curse. And then a final trip all the way out into God's eternal kingdom where everything will be right. So this is where we turn now, to God's eternal kingdom. In Romans chapter 8, look at verse, beginning in verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not worth comparing, like, we're not just talking apples and oranges here. We're talking, it's not even worth mentioning in the same sentence. The suffering we endure in this life with the glory that will be revealed in God's kingdom. It so far surpasses anything we could know or imagine. So I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. We're going to pause right there. The creation, think here he's talking not about people, but about the world, about the natural order. All right? He's talking about creation itself. And it's, he says it's longing, <laughs> kind of personifies it a bit, as though the earth has desires. But he says the creation is 
eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. There's the glory that is to come in its fullness when Jesus returns and his people are gathered to himself. The creation is longing for this because here's what happened to it in verse 20. The creation was subjected to futility. Futility is like vanity, purposelessness. It doesn't work. It never goes anywhere. It's like the hamster running in the wheel, right? Am I getting somewhere yet? No, you're in a wheel. It's not going anywhere. That's the kind of life that the creation has been subjected to. Futility. It doesn't work, and it perpetuates itself. It's always broken, and it produces more brokenness. But why is the world in that state? Is that the state it was always in? No, it was subjected to futility. That is a passive, the, the creation didn't make that happen. Somebody else subjected the creation to futility. Who and why? Look at the very next phrase. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, it's like not of its own doing, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The creation was subjected to futility in hope. Who does that? Did Satan plunge the world into futility with hope for redemption? That's not what was on Satan's mind. Do you think Adam and Eve, when they ate the forbidden fruit, had in mind that someday the world would be delivered, redeemed, corrected? No way. The only one it's possible who had hope in mind for a future redemption is the Lord himself. God subjected the creation to futility, which is what we just read about in Genesis 3. Because of you, cursed is the ground, right? Thistles and thorns it will produce, and you will eat of it by the sweat of your face. It was subjected in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. The world is corrupt. The world is broken. It is in bondage, and one day it will be set free. Look at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What do the pains of childbirth bring about? A new life. The creation itself, subjected to futility, is groaning, but it's childbirth. It's birth pains. It's groaning will lead to life. It will lead to redemption. What redemption is in view here, I think we find most clearly in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. I know this feels a little bit like a Bible drill. Hopefully you'll know your Bible a little better after today. Just kidding. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. John has this vision of the future return of Christ and the kingdom he establishes. Look at this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Now we knew that the first earth and heaven were going to pass away, right? We read that from Second Peter earlier, that, that, that it was being kept for fire. And that on the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, it would be 
destroyed and the, the, the works of men would be exposed. First heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming. If this current earth is going to be destroyed, we have the promise of a new earth. And in fact, that's the eternal home of believers. Those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ in this life, they don't get some weird disembodied floating state. I don't know, you've probably seen cartoons and things or maybe had like your own imaginations about heaven being like sitting on a cloud or playing, learning to play the harp or whatever. Like you're some just kind of like spirit being floating about in the sky. That's not even close to what the eternal kingdom of God is going to be like. It's going to be like a physical earth, a newly created earth, and God dwells with his people on the earth. Listen to this from uh, Michael Houdman. The heaven that believers will experience will be a new and perfect planet on which we will dwell. The new earth will be free from sin, evil, sickness, suffering, and death. It will likely be similar to our current earth or perhaps even a recreation of our current earth, but without the curse of sin. Because Jesus Christ has come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And a part of the curse is this world is broken. This world is barren and in futility. And one day it's going to be destroyed. But guess what? Because of Jesus Christ, all things are made new. Our understanding of the gospel needs to have room for a holistic redemption. God doesn't just redeem individual people. He redeems a new earth. He has an entire kingdom established where his people will live with him. We need to have that kind of picture in view. And because Adam, where Adam failed, where Adam's rebellion led to painful, frustrating work, and the earth fighting back at him and, and even finding the basic sustenance of life is fraught with danger and pain and exhaustion. Jesus undoes it. Jesus redeems it. Jesus takes that burden upon himself and he re-infuses our work with divine purpose. And he sets us about the task of doing his work in the world, the work of the Father. So the good news of Christmas, the good news of Advent is that Jesus has come and he has redeemed, he has inaugurated this new kingdom. He has taken our brokenness and the brokenness of the world, the creation, into his own life and experience and he's upended it. And we look forward to the day when Christ returns and he establishes his forever kingdom and he recreates a brand new world that's unstained by sin, where the curse is not even a distant memory 
and we're with him in innocence and joy forever. That's what Christmas is all about.